Larry, thank you. I know many of you prayed for us as we are we were at the conclave a week or so ago. And some have asked, how did things go? What happened? Uh, let me say that uh, it was one of the best we've ever had. Our numbers were down, partially because of cost. For instance, uh, church in California that usually sends uh, four, sometimes five elders right up to the week before were trying to come, and they said they just couldn't afford it. So we did experience uh, lesser numbers, but it, in many ways was one of the most intimate times we've had. There was a sobriety in our meetings. Uh, the prayer time, the prophetic words were less in number, and yet very focused, very much on target. Uh, really was a blessed time. I read one paper uh, Thursday morning, and it amazes me that I read a 57-page uh, paper that took a little over three hours to read, and that these guys will sit that long and listen is amazing. On uh, Thursday, Owen Carey and Clay Sterrett each brought uh, shorter papers. But just a blessed time. But I do need to report that... Uh, I had an experience different than anything I've, I've ever had before in our time of worship. As we were worshiping, uh, suddenly dew from heaven began to fall on my head. It was, I felt it, and seriously now, I'm, I, I, it was water, clear. I never had that happen in a worship service before. I, I looked ahead, however, and there were two hummingbirds uh, in the light, <clears throat> And God was delivering that dew through the droppings of hummingbirds. <laughs> a brand new experience to me. <laughs> but it was really a blessed time. If you look at the calendar that you have on the wall of your home, I'm sure you'll note a lot of holidays. I looked at one in my study. It had Christmas, Epiphany, Ash Wednesday, Palm Sunday, Passover, Good Friday, Easter, Sukkot, Thanksgiving, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, St. Patrick's Day, and Benito Pablo Juarez Garcia's birthday. <laughs> I wonder who is that? So I found I should know because he's a wonderful hero from Mexico. You know, we have a lot of different calendars in our home, and so I decided I want to check everyone to see if they noted Pentecost. And as I looked at the calendars, one after another, no Pentecost. Now, the calendar, surprisingly, that had the most religious holidays on it was the calendar featuring classic motorcycles. Uh, but it still didn't have Pentecost. And I finally found Pentecost on two. One was a calendar we have uh, featuring classic cars, and the other one was the Farmer's Almanac weather calendar. Uh, but none of the others uh, had Pentecost. I thought it was interesting that those were the two that did. May the 23rd, today, is Pentecost, and it's interesting that for some reason that day seems to be ignored on calendars, even on many Christian calendars. In some ways it's the most forgotten event of our Christian year, and yet it's an astounding thing that we would omit such a day. This is a huge day in God's redemptive plan. 
And it is intriguing that Pentecost to a large degree is forgotten. Now usually when we think of Pentecost, we think of the descent of the Holy Spirit. And how could we not? Because that was the signal event of that day. And yet the larger truth about Pentecost is this. Pentecost closed the book on the Mosaic Covenant. On Pentecost that book was closed and put on the shelf. And on Pentecost was inaugurated the new covenant, God's final covenant with mankind. And the descent of the Holy Spirit was an essential and very necessary element in that. And yet the underlying truth is a new covenant was initiated upon the day of Pentecost. Pentecost launched the age of grace. It launched the age of the Spirit. It began the era in which Jesus sacrificial atonement was made available to everyone uh, who would receive it. And if you stop and think about this, if God had not chosen some other event or some other means to inaugurate that covenant, you and I today would still be living under the Mosaic Covenant. Thank God that isn't true. Thank God for Pentecost. This morning let's spend a bit of time celebrating Pentecost by considering its significance. Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the house where they were sitting. There appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now, there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. When this sound occurred, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because they were each one hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and marveled, saying, Why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it we we hear each one of them in our own language to which we were born? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, the residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and districts of Libya around Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them in our own tongues speaking the mighty deeds of God. And they continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, What does this mean? Others were mocking and saying, they're full of new wine. Peter, taking a stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words, for these men are not drunk as you suppose. It is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my Spirit upon all mankind. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. Even upon my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my Spirit, and they shall prophesy. I will grant wonders in the sky above, Signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. 
the sun shall be turned into darkness, the moon into blood, before that great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. It shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And I'm sure you know the rest of the story. The background for this event took place ten days before. During the forty days that followed the resurrection of Jesus Christ, He appeared to His followers on many ways. And you recall on Easter Sunday we recounted the events of the resurrection and how Christ appeared to many of His followers on that day. But in the remaining forty days, Jesus also appeared to His followers from time to time different places and different settings. One time, Paul said, he appeared to 500 people at once. But most of his appearances uh, were to the apostles. On one occasion, he had the apostles meet him on a mountain in Galilee. And at that time, you recall, there were only 11 because Judas now had hanged himself after betraying the Lord. And on that mountain, as the eleven met with him, Jesus gave the great commission. All authority is given unto me in heaven and upon earth. Go ye therefore and make disciples of all nations, immersing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. And so to the eleven on this occasion in Galilee was given what we call the great commission. Sometime later, the apostles were back in Jerusalem, and Jesus appeared to them on that day. This was the 40th day after his resurrection. He got them together and took them to a hillside outside of Jerusalem. And there he gave them the great commission again and promised them a wonderful gift from heaven. Acts 1, gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, You heard of from me, for John immersed with water, you'll be immersed with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. When they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, even to the remotest part of the earth. And after he'd said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. So the apostles were promised that they were going to receive what had been promised from the days of John the Immerser. You remember John in Luke 3.16, Matthew, Mark, all tell of this account. When they began to ask John, Who are you? John answered and said to them all, As for me, I immerse you with water. But one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. He will immerse you in the Holy Spirit and fire. And so the apostles, were promised by Jesus that this immersion in the Holy Spirit was going to be theirs. And they were to wait in Jerusalem until that happened. And when it did happen, they would be given, empowered, 
to go forth and do the work of the Lord under the power of the Holy Spirit. After that promise, Jesus ascended. They went back into the city. And there for the next 10 days, they had a prayer meeting with 120 other disciples of Jesus. Now it's important when we're reading the Word of God to notice the difference between those who were general disciples and those who were apostles. There are certain things that were said to the apostles that were not said to all disciples, but later often many of these things were expanded to everyone. And so they went into this 10-day prayer meeting. They had one item of business to conduct. It was the will of God that there be 12 apostles, but now there were only 11 because of the defection and suicide of Judas. And so under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, certainly the leading of God, they selected Matthias, and from that time on, he was accounted as one of the twelve. So they had twelve. Then at nine o'clock in the morning, on the day of Pentecost, it happened, the account we just read. And the new covenant was inaugurated as Jesus poured out the Holy Spirit. It's so interesting to read the language, the promise of the Spirit all the way through had come. And this, Peter said, is what had been promised. Verse 33 of Acts 2. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. When they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent. Let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you, for your children, for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God shall call to himself. With many other words he solemnly testified, kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then those who had received his word were immersed. They were added that day about 3,000 souls, and they continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, and to the breaking of the bread. What a wonderful account. So this morning, as we think about Pentecost, let's spend a few moments thinking about the old covenant, the new covenant that we have, what a contrast, what an advantage we have of the new covenant that was inaugurated on that day. So first we need to define covenant. The Greek, or rather the Hebrew word, which we render as covenant, is the word berit. Uh, in the Greek, it's diatheke. And it has as its primary meaning to fetter something or to bind something. And we find many covenants that are between human beings in Scripture. When human beings make a covenant together, two individuals decide to enter into a covenant. Now, in the earliest days, 
they would exchange one another's blood. They would cut and sometimes hold the arms together, sometimes even put a drop of blood upon the tongue. They would exchange blood. But in the scripture, we find that that practice had passed. And instead, there was usually the exchange of some kind of a gift. In some cultures, when a covenant was made, it would be possible for a man to give his son to the other man, and this man give him one of his sons. And there'd be that sense of bonding together. And from that day onward, what happened to one of them happened to the other. It was as if they had become one person. It's interesting in Scripture that marriage is described as a covenant in this way. Malachi 2.14 Yet you say, for what reason? Talking about why God is judging them. Why is God judging us? And many reasons are given, and here's one. Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Jesus used this same language when he spoke of marriage in Matthew 19.4. Have you not read? He who created them from the beginning made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. You see, marriage, scripturally, is a covenant. And when you're married, you become one flesh. It is a covenant relationship. Now, divine covenants made with humans have some important differences between the covenants between human beings. First of all, only God can initiate the covenant. We don't find examples. As a matter of fact, it would be inappropriate for us to come to God and say, I want to make a covenant with you. I want to bind you to me. Divine human covenants have to be initiated by divinity. Only God can offer that relationship. Secondly, God will never break the covenant. He is a faithful God. He is unchanging. But men can. When God is in covenant with man, God will not break the covenant, but humans can. And as we have many passages in Scripture, when God made covenants with men, there was always that stipulation of if. This is my covenant with you, if. And faithfulness was the presumption. So only God can set the terms of the covenant. When humans are setting covenant, they negotiate. But with God, only He can set the terms. The covenant is clearly not between two equals. And there is no sense of becoming one, as is true in covenants between humans. We are attached to Him, we enter into Him, and yet He is still the immutable God. So there's not that kind of blending. There are three major human divine covenants in the Old Testament. And there are others that are inferred. They're clear that are three that are clearly stated. First, the covenant with Noah. You remember after the flood, it is stated in Genesis chapter 9 that God made a covenant and said, Never again will I destroy the world with a flood. And the sign of this covenant will be the rainbow. Now it's interesting, prior to that flood, rain had not fallen upon the earth. Now the atmosphere had changed in such a way that the light shining in a prismatic effect would create the rainbow. And every time we see a rainbow, now because God changed the atmosphere, 
we can see the promise of God that the world will never again be destroyed by a flood. That is the first covenant stated in Scripture made between God and man. The second one is with Abraham. In that covenant, God said, I will multiply you. I will make you the father of, of a multitude so great that in one case you can't count the specks of dust. In another case, he said, you can't count the stars of heaven. But And out of your loins will come kings. And he said, from the river Euphrates to the river of Egypt, this will be the land that I will give to your descendants. That covenant is Genesis 15 and Genesis chapter 17. The third covenant between God and man that we find in the Old Testament is the one that was made with Israel at Mount Sinai, which is also called Mount Oreb. You recall God said, now you'll be my chosen people. Here we first had the covenant with Abraham. And the descendant, although he had two sons, he had Isaac and Ishmael. The covenant was to be passed on through Isaac. Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau, but Jacob was the one through which the covenant was to be passed. And then after Jacob was this uh, development of the great nation, and God made a covenant with that nation. Exodus chapter 24 and Exodus 34, you find that covenant God making with Israel. So we have these three Old Testament covenants. Within those covenants, there are lesser covenants. For instance, in the covenant with Moses, God made a covenant with the Levites that they would be the priestly nation, and, and so on and so on. So there are lesser covenants. But these are the three major covenants prior to the new covenant that God had made with humanity. It's, it's, it's important for us to be aware of the difference between the new covenant and those covenants that preceded it. Let's talk about that for a little while. Under the new covenant, immersion and the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit replaced circumcision and the keeping of the law. If you ask a Jew, how do you know that you are a participant in this covenant? He would say, I've been circumcised. That happened when I was eight days old. And ever since then, I've kept the law. So I know I'm a participant in the covenant. But if you ask a Christian, are you a participant in the covenant? If he says yes, his answer is this. Yes, because I have been immersed, and from that time on, I have had the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. The people on Pentecost cried out, what shall we do? The first thing Peter said to them was repent. The Greek word is metanoeo. They had crucified Jesus. And Peter said, now this one you crucified, he's been exalted. He is the Lord in Christ, therefore metanoeo, which means change your mind. Change your mind about who Jesus is. He is not this person you can crucify, but he is Lord. That's what the, the sense of that word is in that passage. Change your mind about who Jesus is. And then he said to be immersed and you would receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. But he said this is not just something for you who are here today. But this promise is to you and to your children and to as many as are far off, so many as the Lord our God shall call. So there's that promise. 
Colossians chapter 2, verses 10 to 12. In Him you have been made complete. He is the head over all rule and authority. In Him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ having been buried with Him in immersion in which you were also raised up with Him through faith in the working of God who raised Him from the dead. Note, in that writing, Paul equates immersion with circumcision. So circumcision is the way the uh, Jewish male at least entered into that covenant. Immersion is the way we enter into that covenant. But then after that, the sense that we know the covenant is ours and we are participant is because we have the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1.13 In Him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. Same thing is said in 2 Corinthians 1.21, 2 Corinthians 5.5, 5, and the sense of that truth in Romans 8.16. Now that's a beautiful thing, isn't it? That I can know for sure. Recently, a minister in the city died. A member of his church was in a Bible study with Nicole McVeigh. And she was saying, can I really know that my pastor is going to heaven? You know, some people think you can't know, but you can know. You can know if you've entered into the covenant and you have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. That's the pledge. That's the guarantee. We've talked about this before. Let's talk about it again. The word that is translated sealed refers to a seal that would be placed, for example, on the bottom of a letter. When you write a letter, in those days it would be a scroll. You'd put it together and you'd put wax on it and you'd have your seal you'd put on it. That was your brand. When Jesus was placed in the grave and a stone was placed over the uh, front of it and there would have been a rope or a chain or something put across that stone and the Roman seal was placed upon that uh, binding, whether it's a rope or whatever, and if you broke that seal, you were violating the power of Rome. So it was the brand. And the idea of a seal is we're brand. We have God's brand on us, like you brand calves in the spring. <laughs> or you go see the logo on uh, something on the store. So if I am a Christian, God has put his brand on me. And that brand is the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, which is an absolute guarantee that when I die, I'm going to heaven, and I don't have any doubt about it. And there's that assurance God has given us. Under the new covenant, of course, because of that, we all live in fellowship with the Holy Spirit. So many scriptures speak of that. A second difference is this. The new covenant is not confined to a single race of people or any people group, but it is open to all who will acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord and trust the cross of Christ to cover his sins. The Mosaic Covenant was for Jews. It wasn't for Egyptians. It wasn't for Persians, Babylonians, Romans, Greeks, American Indians, Chinese. It was just for Jews. And in order to 
become a participant in that covenant, you had to become a surrogate Jew, so to speak, a proselyte. You had to identify yourself with that nation. And if an individual who was a Jew rebelled against the covenant of God, as Numbers describes him, sending with a high hand, he is to be regarded as no longer a member of the nation, and he is to be cut off. That was the teaching related to the covenant, Numbers 15:30 and following. So the first covenant, the covenant of Moses, rather, was with a particular race of people. Aren't we glad that isn't true today? Galatians 3:27. All of you who were immersed into Christ have closed yourself with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free man. There's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And that's expressed in greater detail and larger detail in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 22. Now, think about what this means for the nations. The covenant is open to any who will give themselves to Jesus Christ. Think about what this means for women. If you were a Jew under the old covenant, a, a Jewish woman, the only way you could be a part of the covenant really was to be in a family of whose men had been circumcised. There was no way the women could have upon themselves the mark of a covenant. Thank God under the new covenant, that isn't true anymore. <laughs> women, men of any race have the mark of the covenant if they come to Jesus, the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. So we don't have a law as they did, but we have wonderful grace of God. Participants, here's another difference. Participants in the new covenant do not relate to a law, but have a personal relationship with God. You know, you read the Old Testament so often, things like this in Psalm 1. How blessed is the man that does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. Psalm 119, time and time again you find, I love, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Under the Mosaic Covenant, the recipients of the covenant related to God through the law. It was it. That was their meditation. That was their focus. Of course, beyond that, there was God. But that was their focus, rather than that personal relationship with God. As a matter of fact, under the Old Covenant, the only ones who had the Holy Spirit were ones God chose to be kings or prophets, or in one case, when they were building the temple, the Holy Spirit was given to one man who oversaw the construction of the temple. A lot of builders today would like to have that, I'm sure, in that, in that way. But we all have the Holy Spirit under the new covenant. And we relate to God personally through the indwelling. I was just thinking this past week, here's what we could say. Muhammad left a book. Moses left the law. Jesus poured out the Holy Spirit. Isn't that a wonderful thing to think about? 
What a difference we have. Now, Jeremiah, upset with his nation, by prophetic inspiration, wrote this from God. This is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And the book of Hebrews, talking about the new covenant, quoted Jeremiah, and this is what he said, This is the covenant I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws upon their heart, on their mind I will write them. And then he says, that's what we have today. What Jeremiah prophesied for us now is reality. And so we don't relate to God through some external law. We relate to God through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and that Holy Spirit increasingly conforms us to the image of Jesus Christ. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I don't think there's anybody in this church that is more devoted to solid exegesis of Scripture than I am. Some of you may equal me, but I, don't, I would argue that I, anyone is more devoted to that than I am. Throughout my life, I've spent hours every week in the Word so in no way am I saying we should not meditate upon Scripture. But the point is, what position do we give it in our lives? Let me give you an example from my own life. In the 1970s, when I changed my view on the Holy Spirit, and some of you know this story, because the movement I was a part of was cessationist, I became persona non grata in a lot of places. I've been involved in helping establish 13 churches in northeastern Oklahoma. No longer was I welcome in the pulpit of any of them. I had been uh, on the board of a Bible college. I'd lectured in Bible colleges and no longer welcome on those campuses. I had written uh, the Bible studies for the Sunday school quarterly and no longer welcome there. I'd run the church camp in the summer for six weeks, and that became an interesting problem because the members of our church wanted their children to go to church camp. But the rule was that a church could not send its children to church camp unless the minister worked in camp. And they didn't want me on the campus. You, we forbid you to come to church camp because you no longer are cessationists. You believe the Holy Spirit operates today. And so I made this proposal. Because our children want to go to church camp, let me run the kitchen. Surely I can do no harm in the kitchen. And so they made me kitchen manager. It is a wonderful blessing. Uh, you know, I, I was involved with the others in, in the cooking and serving the food, cleaning up, washing dishes and pots, mopping the floor. But the blessed thing was this. At night, when they were off having their worship services, I was free. And the first night was there, I thought, this is wonderful, I'm going to go out. This is at Greenleaf State Park, I'm going to go out on the back side of this lodge. And the back side of the lodge is Greenleaf Lake, goes down, mountains on the other side, a marvelous moonlit night. I'm going to go there and I'm going to worship God. So I rushed back to the dorm and grabbed my Bible and my God said, leave your Bible behind. That's a radical thought. But I did leave it behind. I went out on the back of that. 
night I began to worship God in a wonderful way with a direct relationship with him. Nothing between him and me. No Bible between him and me. The next night, I want to do that again. And so I rushed back to my Bible behind. By the third night, I'd gotten a point. And so for five nights in a row, I had just a marvelous I sensed I was singing with angels. It was a beautiful time I had with God. Now, usually, when church camp was over, I could hardly wait to get home. I was so tired of these kids and wanted to get home to my wife and family. But I'll tell you, that week, I reluctantly drove back to Tulsa because of those marvelous times. But you see what had happened with me? I'd so invested myself in the Bible, I'd so invested myself in Scripture that I had allowed the Bible to occupy the place in my life where only God belongs. And that's such a subtle thing. It's something so subtle we need to be aware of it. By all means, study your Bible, meditate, memorize Scripture, but remember we're really interested in the one who is behind the divine words, not just the divine words themselves. And unfortunately, I think a lot of Christians live as if they were under the Old Covenant. Their relationship is with a book rather than with a person. Hebrews 12.1, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every cumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand. The result of our Bible study should be Rothstein from New Hampshire had a book he'd been reading. He kept excitedly quoting from it uh, uh, during the week. And, uh, and the focus of it was to, fo- to, to let our affection be on things above, not on things of the earth. And there was one statement in the book which I thought was a good one. If we fix our eyes on Jesus, Jesus fixes us. Isn't that a good statement? <laughs> fix our eyes on Jesus, he fixes us. Another difference between the new covenant and the old is this. We don't have to keep making sacrifices to cover our sins or to atone for our sins. Have you ever read through (laughs) Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy and try to sort out all those sacrifices? (laughs) It's a a challenge. I've done it. I've made charts, and yet there are some of them that are so ambiguous you can't be sure exactly what they are. (laughs) And where they fit, so many. But you know, under the new covenant, we don't have to worry about that. Hebrews 12, not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and the sins of the people, because he did it once for all when he offered up himself. 9.12 of Hebrews. 
not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Hebrews 10.10 By this will we have been sacrificed, we will have been sacrificed through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. 1 Peter 3.18 Christ also died for sin once for all, just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. Every single Lord's Day since Pentecost, Christians have met together on the first day of the week to partake of the Lord's Supper. And every time we do that, what we're doing is declaring our faith in the bloody sacrifice offered once for all to take care of our sins. We receive forgiveness. We receive sanctification before God. In this world in which we're living today, we need that weekly reminder of what it's all about. And the Lord's Supper forces us to face that every week. Luke twenty two twenty in the same way he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup, here's the language, this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Think of that. When we partake of the Lord's Supper, we are reaffirming the covenant we have with the Lord Jesus Christ. Same language in Matthew 26, Mark. That was a central part of their covenant. I want all close to God. I don't have to go to Jerusalem. I don't have to go to Years ago, there was a small. Decided to grow. They said we're moving to Kansas City. And they had the hubris to actually put out the What baloney. Thank you for the fellowship we have with the Holy Spirit. The assurance of our salvation.